We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All right, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Sam. I am uh, one of the pastors here and it's my joy to preach this glorious text uh, this morning. Um, before I do, I have one announcement for you, and so uh, let me just say, if, you, if you've missed the memo up until this point, you have zero excuse because you're looking at the worst announcer of all the pastors here. But uh, next week, we, uh, our service is going to be at 9 a.m. Uh, that's a, a favor that we're doing for the movie theater. They have an event uh, soon after that, so our service is going to be at 9 a.m., and then on November 10th, the following week we will have uh, two services, and moving forward, we're going to have two services. So the first is at 9 a.m., and the second is at 10.45. So be prepared to be here uh, next week at 9 a.m., and then at whatever uh, uh, service you decide to, to go after that. So with that said, let's, let's jump right in. Would you guys pray with me before we um, dig into this text? Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you alone are the one true God. And this is your holy, authoritative word. We come before it this morning trembling and eager to hear from you. God, speak through your servant now and work through me the ministry of reconciliation. We consecrate this time over to you for your glory, and for our good, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to ask me, what is the best single verse summary of the gospel in the whole Bible, I would go to this passage every time. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galaxies are contained in these few words, brothers and sisters. Paul has squeezed in this single sentence a theology of sin, of substitutionary atonement, of the sinlessness of Christ, of union with Christ, of imputed righteousness. And we're going to dwell on all of these glorious realities in due course. But before we get there, we have to see how Paul got there. So we're going to start in verse 11 and then work our way through the text. And then we will land here in verse 21 and I'll offer some theological reflections. But first, let's begin in verse 11. Read that with me. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So remember what we just read last week. Pastor Josh expounded Paul's desire for heaven. Right? And hope for the resurrection when the tent of his earthly body could be traded in and upgraded for a resurrected permanent temple. A body that will be fit to dwell bodily with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So in last week's passage, Paul was totally heavenly minded. And I want to emphasize this point because it's often assumed that to be so heavenly minded is to be no earthly good. You've heard that phrase before, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But this is not the case for Paul. Far from being, or far from devolving into pie in the sky sentimentalism or frightful escapism, a head full of heaven drives Paul to mission. He's like C.S. Lewis's Narnia character Reepicheep, the talking rat who proves himself to be the bravest and most valiant servant in Aslan's army precisely because he's so enamored with a laser-like vision on getting to the edge of the world and the beginning of Aslan's country. Like Reepicheep, meditation on heaven does not incentivize inaction for Paul. It incentivizes mission. This is a passage about mission. And notice specifically Paul's motivation in verse 11 for persuading others is the fear of the Lord. What's he getting at? Well, I think we need look no further than verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or, ev or evil. Paul feels the terrifying weight of eternity. The stakes are gravely high. What people stand to gain and what people stand to lose is of infinite consequence. And so Paul persuades. And this motivation, says Paul, is to be contrasted with the kind of short-sighted, self-glorifying motive of persuasion for boasting. Right? A persuasion for the super-exaltation. He's not motivated that way. He's motivated by fear of the Lord. And so he persuades. He's not impressed 
with a self-exalting motivation for persuasion. In fact, he's so little impressed with this kind of hubris that he's content to look crazy. Look at verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This is likely a response to a personal slur against Paul. Like, do you really want to listen to Paul? He's crazy. So Paul's basically saying, yeah, crazy for God, you know. <laughs> you, could, you could say that again. He's saying, I don't care what you call me. I want you to know I'm, I am motivated by my love for God and my love for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now when Paul says Christ died for all, therefore all have died, he's using union with Christ language similar to the kind of language that he uses in Galatians when he says, I've been crucified with Christ, which means that when he says, Christ has died for all, therefore all have died, he cannot be saying that all of humanity without exception has died in Christ. And we know that because the result of dying with Christ is that those who have died in Christ become the righteousness of God. Verse 21, we'll see that in a little bit. Actually, the all who have died with Christ in verse 14 is defined for us in verse 15. The all who have died in Christ in verse 14, in verse 15 are those who, li who live no longer for themselves, but for, their, for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, we'll return to this idea later on, but in the meantime, I want you to notice the central point that Paul is making in this passage. He's saying that the love of of Christ is what controls him. He is controlled by this irresistibly compelling love of Christ. This Christ who sacrificially gave up his life to save sinners. That display of love grips Paul's affection and he's constrained to preach the gospel and to live no longer for his own sake. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that the self-exalting, self-glorifying life that is so attractive to the Corinthians and that the super apostles are, are so good at demonstrating, that kind of life is exactly the kind of life that Christ died to save us from. He's saying, in other words, living a life that is poured out and spent and used up for the sake of Christ and his glory and not our own, is actually a benefit of salvation. It's not a downside. It's one of the perks of salvation. That we no longer have to live for ourselves. We can live for something bigger. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we're regarding him thus no longer. So here Paul is continuing to drive in this point that he's been working at all throughout this letter. The point is this, the Corinthian paradigm for success was entirely too fleshly. It was wrong-headed. They were taking their cues from a worldly, conventional wisdom. According to the flesh, the super apostles, 
with all their grandiosity and boasting and wealthy and, and wealth with letters of recommendation and rhetorical flourish, those guys, according to the flesh, were the apex of ministry. According to the flesh, the cross was a shameful display of losing. According to the flesh, Paul was weak and pitiful and embarrassing. According to the flesh, appearances are everything. And Paul says, not so for me anymore. That used to be my perspective, even of Christ, but not anymore. I regard no one according to the flesh anymore. I view all of the world through one lens, in Christ and or those who are in Christ and those who are not. And I don't, I don't take into consideration wealth or prestige or position or anything else that you consider so important. I no longer view people according to the flesh. What happened to Paul to bring about such a radical change of perspective? He was totally of the same mindset as the Corinthians until something happened. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Why does Paul not think like he used to? Why does he not see people according to the flesh anymore? Because he's literally not the same person anymore. He has been completely transformed. He is a new creation. And this should make us think back on chapter 4, verse 6 that we covered a, a, a few weeks ago, right? When Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And just as in the case of that passage a couple of weeks ago, this passage should make us think simultaneously about God's glory in creation and in the new creation. When he resurrects this fallen world into a new heavens and a new earth, Paul is saying, when you are in Christ, you are completely transformed such that you belong to a new order in a future world that is coming. Right? This is why Paul no longer views Christ or anyone else according to the flesh. It's because he's got heaven's eyes in his head. He's looking at people from that eternal perspective. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is who Christians are. They are creatures of a new world walking around on an old one. And their future is pulling them towards it. This is amazing. But this is not all. Because in the meantime, God intends to do something with these newly created people. He actually makes them new and then sends them out to be his agents. They are tools by which he makes more people new. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciles us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is amazing. And we could spend all day in these few verses here, but I want to call your attention to two important points here. 
First, we should point out that it is God who reconciles himself to us, not the other way around. And if this does not strike us as incredible, it is surely because we do not know ourselves or God rightly. God is the only purely innocent being to ever exist, which means if there were ever a being who would be justified in refusing to reconcile an injured relationship, it would be him. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't exercise that right. He reconciles. Listen, you and I have never experienced this before in an earthly way. There has never been a reconciliation in a human relationship in which sin did not go in both directions. Not so with God. He would have been completely justified in leaving us to our own mess. He had done nothing to provoke us, but we set ourselves up against him as his enemies. And yet, while we were breathing out venomous hatred through our teeth, saying, I don't want you. He reconciled himself to us. I want you. This is grace. Second, we should notice that those of us who have been reconciled to God are reconciled to reconcile. In other words, we are sent out as an extension of his reconciling ministry to speak on his behalf. We speak for God. Did you hear that, brothers and sisters? We speak for God. When we plead with unbelievers to be reconciled to God, when we speak the truth of the gospel, we are speaking for God. We are his mouthpiece. When the lost hear the good news of the gospel mumbled through our lips as we blunder through a clumsy gospel presentation, they are hearing the very voice of God. That's Jesus they hear in our voice. This puts a whole new spin on evangelism, doesn't it? This is what we're doing when we evangelize. So what is this message of reconciliation? We just saw God reconciled himself to us and is now sending us out to be agents of reconciliation on his behalf. We are bearing this message of reconciliation. So what is this message? What's the content of this message that we are speaking on behalf of God? Verse 21 tells us, for our sake, this is our message. This is what we bring to the world. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. That's the message of reconciliation. The way that God reconciles himself to us. Here is the diagnosis of humanity's not dire condition and the only hope for its cure. So for the rest of our time together, I want us to simply camp out here and revel in the gospel together. And I'd like to offer five theological reflections in light of this glorious verse. First, notice the severity of sin. Paul says, for our sake, God the Father made Christ to be sin. The second person of the Trinity, 
the eternal son of God, added a human nature to himself and lived and breathed on this planet. And he, this God-man, the father made to be sin, Paul tells us, for our sake. Why? Why does, why does he do this for our sake? What does it benefit us for him to be made sin? And the answer is, of course, sin is who we are apart from Christ. Christ was made our sin. In other words, the only way that we could benefit from any sort of exchange between God and us was for the Son of God to be made the embodiment of sin for us. That's how wretched we were. That's how dreadful our situation was. Our identity was sin. Our fundamental disposition was in opposition to God. And this is the case for you if you're not a believer today. This is still your situation. You could put it like this. The reason that Jesus endured the full crushing weight of the wrath of God on the cross is because when he was on the cross, he looked like you. God had wrath for him because he looked like you in your sinful condition. He looked like you and me in our sinful condition. And God's response, wrath. This is the depth of how low Christ had to descend in order to retrieve you, Christian. But he did. He didn't have to, but he did. For our sake, he did. Second, notice Christ's passive obedience. One of the prerequisites for being a minister of reconciliation is that we don't have our trespasses counted against us. Chapter 5, verse 19. And this, not having our trespasses counted against us, this Christ accomplishes for us when he is made sin for our own sake. And this is what theologians throughout church history have referred to as the passive obedience of Christ. And calling it passive doesn't mean that he's inactive or unresponsive or anything like that. It's simply a term that refers to Christ obediently bearing under the curse of the law and paying for the wages of sin. And the culmination of this passive obedience is his death on the cross. But the passive obedience of Christ refers not only to his death, it's not just his death, but rather to his whole life of suffering under the effects of sin's curse. All the, all the effects of sin that we experience of sin's curse, Christ bore up obediently under all of those things as well. Christ does this for us. He lives out the sentence of sin's curse and he pays the wages of sin that we deserve on our behalf. And most of the time when the gospel is preached, this aspect of Christ's ministry is what is primarily in view. You've heard this many times, I, I trust. He bears the penalty of our sin. Our sin can be forgiven because he paid the price for it. The wages of sin is death, and he pays those wages for us on the cross. And another big theological, this is a Bible word though, big, big Bible word. 
he propitiates, propitiates the wrath of God, which simply means, propitiation means, that he satisfies and absorbs the wrath of God in himself and thereby diverts it away from us. The wrath of God was the executioner's axe swinging down toward our neck and he put his neck on the line in our stead. That's the passive obedience of Christ. But third, notice also Christ's active obedience. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God in whom? In him who knew no sin. You see, the sinlessness of Christ is crucial here. And it's the key to our becoming the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is the sinlessness of Christ. And this is what theologians have referred to as the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is that he bears the penalty for the weight of sin. And the active obedience of Christ is that he earns a righteousness. He obeys. He obeys where Adam and everyone else has failed. And this is crucial because, this is going to sound controversial if you've, if you've been around in Christian circles, but this is really important. This is crucial because we need more than the forgiveness of sins. We certainly do not need less than the forgiveness of sins, but we need more. Why? It's because all throughout Scripture, eternal life does not simply depend upon have, on, on having one's sins forgiven, but rather on being counted righteous. Although our sin puts our, our account overwhelmingly in debt, right? We're in the red. Our bank account is in the red infinitely. Because Christ passively obeys and suffers under the wrath of God, he took the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross, which brings our account back into the black. Now our account is no longer infinitely in debt, which is wonderful. But Christ does not stop there. Through his active obedience, he accredits to our account the infinite wealth of his righteousness. Which brings us to our fourth meditation. Fourth, I want you to notice imputation. This verse instructs us on the glorious doctrine of imputation. That is, God imputes or accounts, he credits our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. My sin for Christ's righteousness, my failure for his success, my impurity for his purity, my rebellion for his allegiance, my trespasses for his obedience, my filthy and stained rags for his spotless robes of righteousness. We sinners live lives of rebellion and failure and disobedience and thereby earn the wrath of God. In contrast, Christ, as a man, lives a life of submission and success and holy, worshipful obedience and thereby earns the favor of God and eternal life. And in this glorious exchange, he takes our record upon himself and places his record upon us. 
He receives the wrath that our sin earned and we receive the blessing that his obedience earns. In the name of reconciliation, God sent Christ not only to bear the wrath that our sin earned, but also to earn a righteousness for us to bear. But oh, brothers and sisters, we must say even more. For this exchange is not some sterile, impersonal swap, but rather the effect of a union that is more intimate than we can dream of. It's not that we stand here and I hand Christ my unrighteousness and he takes it and he hands me his righteousness in such a way that it's possible for us to make this exchange without ever touching. It doesn't happen like that. Fifth, notice, union with Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. None of these glorious realities that we've been reveling in are benefits that can be abstracted from the person of Christ. The person of Christ, you don't get the gifts of Christ without the person of Christ. We receive these glorious truths, these things, we receive these gifts through our union with Christ. One pastor once put it like this, Christ did not die so that you could live. Kind of jarring. Christ did not die so that you could live. Christ died so that in him you could die. And Christ was resurrected so that in him you could be resurrected. You see, my union with Christ means that the Holy Spirit has connected me to him, has incorporated me into Christ such that his life becomes mine, his death becomes mine, and his resurrection becomes mine. For me to be united to Christ means that it would now be unjust for God to condemn me to eternal death on account of my sin. Why? Because in Christ, I have already been put to death for that sin. I have been put to death for that sin. That sin has been accounted for by virtue of my union with Christ. In Christ, my record of debt that stood against me with its legal demands has been set aside and nailed to the cross and buried in the grave. In Christ, I've been resurrected to walk in newness of life, free from the condemnation that drove me to be crucified with Christ. All this is how Christ's passive obedience is something that we can actually benefit from. When Christ is united to us in our sinful shoes, he walks the mile in those shoes to the cross so that when all is said and done, we can rest assured in this glorious truth. And brothers and sisters, especially those who have a tender conscience, I want you to hear this, this glorious truth. God is not letting us off the hook for a single one of our sins. He's not. He's not letting you off the hook for a single one of your sins. We are sentenced to death for every single one of them, but we're sentenced to death for every one of them in Christ. And in Christ, there is much more than death for sins. In Christ, there is also a resurrection, a righteousness of a life fully obedient to the law, a life that you and I could never live but one that Christ has lived on our account. 
Without union with Christ, righteousness, the righteousness of his active obedience offers little comfort to sinners like us. What good does it do us to know that someone else has achieved perfection? That's just insult to injury, right? You are such a failure, but good news, somebody else is perfect. Okay, great, good for them. But union with Christ means that such perfection is ours in a true and meaningful way. Listen, it's not simply that the Father looks at us and agrees to pretend that we are righteous. That's not what's happening. In Christ, we are righteous. Union with Christ is how the great exchange happens. None of the benefits of Christ can be found outside of Christ himself. Forgiveness and righteousness and adoption and new life and sanctification and glorification and resurrection and every other spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are located in him and nowhere else. He is not a dispenser of gifts. He is the gift. We get them by virtue of being united to him. And hear me, friends, this is... This is a promise. And so we close with some pastoral charges. And the first is to any non-Christians that are here today. The charge is simple. You've probably expected it. Be reconciled to God. Speaking as an ambassador of Christ on his behalf, pleading with you to be reconciled to God. Come to Christ and be reconciled to God. Paul is... Paul is very clear that in this transaction, you bring nothing to the table but your need. The only righteousness that God will regard is Christ's righteousness. You need to know that. The only righteousness that God will regard is Christ's righteousness. So if you think that you can come to the Father partly on account of your own performance and then the rest of the way on account of Christ, you are sorely mistaken. You don't get Christ's righteousness if you insist on holding on to any of yours. This is what faith alone means. Guys, the hands of faith are always empty. That's what faith alone means. We're coming with empty hands. But if you come to Christ with empty hands, he will give you himself with all of his blessings that come with him. The father's beaming smile of approval is shining on his son. It's shining on Christ. And if you want to get in on that, if you want to get in on that and feel the warmth of his beaming smile of approval, you got to get in Christ. That's where you get it and nowhere else. And hear me, friends, Christ is truly offered to you now. Christ himself and all of his benefits. Come to Christ and have your sins righteously condemned in him. Come to Christ so that in him you might be resurrected to walk in newness of life. Come to Christ so that in him you might be made a new creation. But if you refuse him, beware. The holiness of God demands that the wages of sin are paid. And this means that every sinner, this is really important, every sinner will die for his or her sins. 
The option before you is this. Will you die in Christ or die outside of him? Will you die in Christ so that you might be resurrected in him, bearing a perfect righteousness that you did not earn, meriting eternal life? Or will you die outside of him, apart from him, to die eternally in hell? That's the invitation to you, non-Christian, is to come to Christ and have your sins dealt with, to receive a righteousness. Charge number two is for the Christian. Your charge is to proclaim the gospel of reconciliation. Look at verse 20 again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This verse means that you can sit across the table from your unbelieving friend or family member and with teary eyes plead with them to come to Christ. And you are authorized by this verse, nay, commanded by this verse to say, I'm begging you on behalf of God. These are his words. Come to Jesus and be reconciled to God. Listen, brother, sister, friend, family member, God is pleading with you through my words to be reconciled to himself through Christ. Won't you hear him? And then the last thing I wanna say is more of a benediction. It's not a charge, it's a benediction. It's a blessing for any Christians who happen to be in here who may be struggling with assurance of your salvation. I want you to know that in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. Oh, church, my heart aches for many of you who wrestle with the assurance of your salvation Right? You, look, you keep looking inward. You look at your heart and say, is there real belief there? Is there real belief there? Is there has, has regeneration really happened? Do I have real faith? You keep looking inward. And I want you to hear me, dear brother or sister. The strength or intensity or purity of your faith is so totally and gloriously not the point. Your faith is not the point. What matters is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. Stop looking at your faith in Christ and start looking instead to Christ by faith. That's what your faith is good for. It's not good for, for introspection, right? Your faith is not good to be examined. It's good to be used, right? If you're examining anything, examine Christ. Go to Christ and let these words, these wonderful truths wash over you. If you have any of Christ, you have all of him. He does not dish himself out to you in bits and pieces. God does not look at you and agree to pretend that you are righteous or agree to overlook the elephant in the room that is your true guilt. In Christ, your guilt has been punished. Your wages have been paid. In Christ, you truly are righteous and perfectly so. And this is what we remind ourselves together corporately when we take this sacred meal of communion together. This gospel emblem signifies our participation with this whole Christ, not just parts of him, the whole Christ. As we feed ourselves with this bread and juice, we are feeding our souls with these wonderful in Christ 
truths. So if you're not a Christian, we invite you to stay in your seat. Don't take this meal with us. Right? It may feel awkward. That's okay. But listen, taking this meal would be to affirm that you have acknowledged your helplessness before God. Utter helplessness. Not just kind of helplessness. Utter helplessness. You've acknowledged your utter helplessness before God, that you've despaired of your own works of righteousness, that you come to the sinless Son of God with empty hands, the empty hands of faith alone to receive Him through grace alone. That's what we're acknowledging when we take this meal. And if that's not you, taking this meal would be an untruth. And not only that, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that such an untruth is eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So please don't do that. If you're not a believer this morning, our invitation to you is to remain in your seat and to receive not the emblem of Christ, but Christ himself by faith. And those who are taking this meal, by taking this meal, are in effect saying that they would love to tell you how. They would love to tell you about Jesus. But if you are a Christian, we invite you to this table this morning. And I want you to do so with gravity and reverence, but with joyful gravity and joyful reverence. For what response could we have in light of all of these truths but joy? When you see what you see paraded before you, Every Sunday morning is a collection of God's trophies of grace, his new creation, those who have been made the righteousness of God. So let it stir your affections in glad adoration. I'm gonna pray and then ask for the, non-believe, uh, the believers to come down. You'll come down to my left, take from the bread, dip it in the cup, and then return to your seat on my right. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for making your son who knew no sin become sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dear Jesus, thank you for obeying the Father for us in your living and dying and your suffering and in your obedience that we might be reconciled to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for uniting us to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Triune God, thank you for reconciling yourself to us and entrusting us with this ministry of reconciliation. May these words that I just preached this morning do the work of reconciling more sinners to yourself. Only you can do that. We can't contrive that. It's something that only you can do, so we beg you to do so. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. I love you, Emmaus. Come and take it. Thank you for watching this Emmaus KC podcast. More information about Emmaus KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.